Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. Hi, this is Randy Backward from the Guess Who and BTO, and you are listening to Rock and Roll Archaeology. Pantheon Podcasts presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hello, diggers. Pleased to meet you. Hope you guess my name. Um... Well, that's a bit of a juxtaposition when you think about it. Uh, we're home again here in San Francisco. Hope everybody's doing well out there in Diggerland. All right, real quick news. Uh, last couple of weeks, I've been singing the praises of our three new shows, Rock Candy with Ashley and Maggie, Who Cares About the Rock Hall with Joe Quazala and Kristen Studdard, and of course, The Career Musician with the Irrepressible Nomad. Please. Go listen to those new shows and let us know what you think. Uh, you can let us know through Facebook at the RNRAP, Instagram at RNR Archaeology, and on Twitter at also RNR Archaeology. And since I mentioned Twitter, I want to make a shout out to a super fan, uh, Rick Ivey. Uh, the big shout out is because Rick began his journey with the RNRA podcast and tweeted his thoughts after each episode. He then went back and listened again, bought a T-shirt from tpublic.com while displaying it on his social and has now begun listening to some of our other shows. So big thank you, Rick Ivey. You now have an associate's degree in rock and roll archaeology. Your certificate is in the mail. And while we have been talking a lot about our new shows lately, let me take a moment to remind everyone about our ongoing rock and roll shows. A rock and Roll Librarian with Shelley Sorensen, Real Rock with the Reverend Andy King, Miss Pamela's Pajama Party with the world's most famous groupie Pamela DeBar, Art of Rock with world-famous album cover designer Kosh, and Vinyl Snob with host Dave Whitaker, and of course, The Muses, uh, Shanti and Lynx, who have recently dropped the stuff. You can find all of these podcasts either in our Big Pipe feed in uh, the audio magazine format, or now all the shows are individually available in their own feeds, uh, kind of uh, a la carte, okay? And uh, that's enough for this week. So let's get to our guest. Cut my hair It happened just the other day It's getting kind of long Today we sit down with David Brown, who has written a fantastically comprehensive book on one of the rock world's greatest band of brothers, well, it's all in the book titled Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, The Wild Definitive Saga of Rock's Greatest Supergroup. Coming together out of three hugely successful mid-60s bands, 
uh, the birds where Crosby comes from, Buffalo Springfield, where both uh, Stephen Stills and Neil Young come from, and the Hollies, where Graham Nash first started. Um, of course, it just starts with CSN and then adding the Y when the original three needed extra instrumentation to play the songs on their first album live. There is so much rock and roll history and mythology enveloped in these four men. It's hard to even just give a synopsis for their accomplishments. Yes, the initial spark happened at a party in Joni Mitchell's house, though Stephen still says it was Mama Cass's, when Nash was in L.A. on tour with the Hollies in 68 and added a second harmony to the song, You Don't Have to Cry. Uh, And it all magically happened at that point. Yes, their second official gig was in front of 400,000 in the early morning hours of August 18th at uh, this little uh, concert called Woodstock. (laughs) And while they ended up in the Woodstock film, they asked to be removed from the film Gimme Shelter, which documented the Altamont disaster. So their first tour included the very highs and lows of rock and roll, and that pretty much explains the rest of the on-again, off-again group known as CSNNY. Along with all that mighty talent came mighty egos and mighty troubles. Truly spinal tap stories uh, without the heavy guitars. So, as was originally intended, CSN and now why, uh, was an opportunity for these great musical gods to come together for a time and then go to their respective solo work, only to come back at a later date. And that is what they did, Uh, sometimes with Neil, sometimes without, sometimes only just two of them. I'm not sure it needed all the drama. Oh, yes, lots of various drugs and egos. Um, It seemed the original mission was defined, Uh, but that's just the way it went. Every few years or decade, at least until 2015, when what might be the final nail was driven into the proverbial coffin. As of this recording, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young haven't performed uh, since an acoustic bridge school benefit on October 27, 2013, and the original trio hasn't uh, since a disastrous live Christmas performance on the Capitol Mall on December 3, 2015. Um, But they are all still alive, so who knows? Maybe. David Brown has written in great detail all the ins and outs of this supergroup, well known as an acclaimed journalist with Rolling Stone, The New York Times, and other periodicals, along with several books, all focused on our mutual passion of rock and roll. Okay, so let's get to it. Let's get in the thick of it. Ladies and gentlemen, David Brown. One morning I woke up and I knew you all. A new day, a new way, and new hours to belong. Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, David Brown. How are you doing today? Pretty good, Christian. How about yourself? I'm doing fine. Thanks for asking. Uh, I believe you are in Gotham City, right? New York, Manhattan, probably, huh? I'm in New York City, indeed. 
Yeah, yeah. We're, we're out here on the West Coast. So uh, cross-continental discussion today, talking about a giant act uh, here. You've written a new book on Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. Um, so my first question is, why does everybody hate David Crosby these days? <laughs> you know, uh, David's always, um, and, and he'd be the first to admit this, has always had a big mouth. You know, and he's, he's, you know, always, he's never been shy about expressing his opinions. Uh, and that goes, you know, even back to the uh, final days of the birds when he went on stage at the Monterey Pop Festival in 67 and went off about the Warren Commission and how politicians should take LSD. And, oh, conspiracy theories and yes, yeah. although everything. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and, uh, and now he's got Twitter, you know, which is he's an active tweeter. Oh, he's um, a great tweeter. Yeah, he's yeah, he's he's one of the great rock and roll tweeters. <laughs> um, but, you know, unfortunately, he, he, he's, he, he, look, these guys have always um, done a little dance around themselves, you know, for 50 years. There, there are various periods when, when some of them are in touch and some are other, some aren't, and then they change partners to use a, a still song title. And then people who weren't friendly are suddenly friendly again. And it's this, it's this very strange thing that has, goes on around and around and around. And, um, Right now, we've reached a strange point where uh, Crosby and Nash, especially, have had a big falling out. And about three years ago, and some of it had to do with the fact that, you know, Crosby gave an interview uh, to an Idaho newspaper in which he was quoted pretty much dissing Daryl Hannah, who was Neil Young's girlfriend at the time, new girlfriend and now his wife. And, you know, David insists that he was speaking off the record, but, you know, uh, whatever the case was, it it made it into print, and, and that, that led to a, uh, a kind of a big fallout between him and, and the refs. So he and Stills have never been especially tight, but, uh, but it led to a big fallout with Nash and, uh, and Young. Uh, that has not really resolved itself, unfortunately. Yeah, keep the wives and girlfriends out of it, huh? Yeah, and there were other things. You know, Crosby was not happy with Graham Nash's book. Uh, from a few years ago, he felt dwelled too much on uh, his Crosby's own foibles and not enough on Nash's, uh, uh, you know, issues, and so he felt uh, he felt kind of betrayed by that book. So there's a lot. There's a lot going on. That is almost as if 50 years worth of aggravations just finally, you know, uh, really erupted in, in the biggest way possible. Yeah, it's too bad, but it's just part of the tale. Uh, this has gone on for 50 years, uh, and let's face it, it is four big, deserving egos that have each you know, accomplished quite a bit, and that's going to be tough to make work any way you try to slice it, even, even if everybody was on their best behavior 100% of the time, huh? Right, and that was the case from day one. You know, they, they started making their first album, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, yeah, um, just a little over 50 years ago, February 69. And in addition to talking to people, I also, you know, went through newspaper and magazine archives just to read what was written at the time. And, and that month, in February 69, there was an article in Billboard magazine, the music trade magazine, uh, announcing the start of this project. And it said something along the lines of, uh, recording their new album, their first album in L.A., are Stills, Crosby, Nash, with, with hyphen. I said, huh? And so I, in my subsequent interviews with Crosby and Nash, I asked them about this. And they said, yes, that was the working name of the band. Stephen wanted to be first. 
And, and I said, oh, okay. And what happened? He said, well, they said, they both said, well, we talked him out of it because they said, first it, of all, it doesn't work. <laughs> it sounds best as Crosby, Stills, and Nash. And then, of course, Crosby also added to me, he said something like, well, also, you know, I had the hits with the birds. Yeah, as if his name should come first. Anyway, so, you know, there were little things like that going on before they even, you know, recorded a note of music together. You know? And, yeah, they've gone on to become this. They're really, they really are rock's greatest dysfunctional musical family. That consistently and continually comes and goes. Exactly. Yeah. It, it's almost like, you know, uh, relatives, a family getting together for a, for a holiday meal and when they, everyone first arrives, it's all good and telling family stories and having a good meal together. But maybe by the end of the night, somebody brings up Fox News. Somebody brings up something. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And that's the way it is with these guys. They'll reunite. They'll go on. Everything's OK. Then and something will happen. You know, they'll try recording the song and someone's not happy with the harmony on it. And then, boom, it all goes to pieces again. And, uh, you know, as, as Nash wrote a song about it called Wasted on the Way, you know, and that, that pretty much sums it up. Yeah, yeah. It's just a continual experience. And, you know, I sort of experienced it firsthand. I lived through some of this firsthand in the sense that I discovered them when I was a teenager in the late 70s. And I saw them for the first time when they were just CSN reunited in 1977 for the album that has uh, just a song before I go and Dark Star and all yeah. those songs. Yeah. So Madison Square Garden here in New York City, it was very exciting. They were they were pretty mythical figures. By Even then. by then, yeah. Oh yeah. And I was like, oh my god, they're back together. I had lousy nosebleed seats, but it was still really exciting. And then you know maybe six months or something later in Rolling Stone, which is how you got your music news back then. Right. You know, you read. Uh, well, they started recording a new album, but it's fallen apart, and they're <laughs> they're doing solo albums again, and you're kind of going what. You know, and so, you know, right away, you, you, at least I I and probably many of their fans had that sense that this was never going to be easy for, for them or us. <laughs> Definitely. But it's a continuing story. It, uh, you know, it even makes headlines today. So you uh, have written for Rolling Stone yourself. You've written several books delving into uh, various periods of rock history, including a good one on Sonic Youth. And how did you fall in love with music and, and say, you know, I just have to figure out a way to make my life about this. Wow. Well, I think it was probably a few different things. Um, I mean, I grew up uh, loving music, buying, you know, 45s and then making the big transition to albums when I was a teenager in the 70s. That's a forgotten concept now. You, you <laughs> a sign of maturity. And you, you were cool if you suddenly had you're buying albums. Right. Yeah. And uh, and around the same time, I started reading Rolling Stone. I would read uh Many, many of the legendary writers, including Cameron Crowe, who I, who I soon found out was like, you know, two years older than me. And he was like a teenager and, and writing. Uh, I, I think his first assignment was at 15. Yeah, I think something like that. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, um, you know, I was just I grew up loving the music. I grew up loving rock journalism and reading Rolling Stone and Cream and Crawdaddy and all these magazines. And, and I remember just at some point just thinking, wow. This seems like such a great job. I wonder if I could do that, you know. Right. Uh, and I, you know, stupidly, you know, decided to uh, to, to follow that dream. Well, not stupidly, but naively, I should say, because I had no idea, I had no contacts or anything. But you know, I just uh, decided, like, I loved I loved writing stories. I, I loved writing record reviews for my high school newspaper. I thought, wow, I wonder if I could make I a could, living of it, right? 
living out of it. And uh, I've been fortunate enough to do that so far. So, uh, but, but yeah, it was a combination of loving writing and storytelling and loving music. And it just seemed like a perfect blend of all those interests of mine. And here we are several books later and uh, talking about uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. Okay, so let's meet the four men in question. Neil from Canada, Stills from the South, uh, Nash from England, and David Crosby from L.A. That's right. Uh, hard to imagine four different guys in every sense of the word, not just scattered in different parts of the globe as far as their origins, but also in their musical tastes. You know, Stills growing up with with blues and folk and, and, and Latin music and all, you know, incredibly diverse range of styles and having to do with his family, having moved around a lot. Uh, you know, Nash, very much a British pop guy. You know, Crosby growing up with, you know, jazz and classical music. You know, as he told me, he wasn't really into rock. Rock was just starting when Crosby was a teenager. Right. So you'd think he would have been into Elvis. He, he didn't care for that stuff. He liked things that were more sophisticated and, uh, so he, he was coming from a whole different place. Neil, of course, coming from, you know, again, also pretty kind of a vernacular music, but also you hear his early recordings with his early Canadian groups, and he's doing like almost almost like surf songs, even though they're in Canada. So very different musically, very different in terms of their their personalities, you know, Nash being the more kind of level-headed, uh, business-minded, uh, conciliator kind of guy, Crosby and Stills being much more impulsive and some hot-headed at times. And Neil, <laughs> Neil, and Neil just being Neil time. Right? Being, non, uh, being kind of uh, hard to pin down, uh, following his own path, not really a group kind of guy. You know, not a band guy. Uh, he can be when he wants to, but it's not his, his natural inclination. So, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine uh, four more different guys coming together in a band, but but they did. <laughs> and uh, and then the reason I think, you know, somebody asked me this one, I was like, well, how, where did they join together? How did they do that? You know, the, the quippy answer to that is unemployment, you know. Because, yeah, well, I think it starts with Crosby getting fired from the birds, right? But being fired from the birds was, was the big catalyst. Um, although, you know, when I talked to um, uh, Roger McGuinn, so I have the birds as well for the book, and, uh, and he remembers in the months leading up to that that uh, there was early cross-pollination. You know, we forget that a few months before Crosby was fired from the birds, Buffalo Springfield and the birds were at the Monterey Palm Festival in June of 67, and Crosby sat in with the Springfield because Neil had bolted. Yeah. And so he just needed, like, another guitar player. And when you just say that now, it just sounds like, what's the big deal? Back then, oh no, this was competition. It was competition. You didn't, you didn't sit in with another band, you know. You didn't do that kind of thing. Yeah, there uh, were rules. Yeah, there were absolute rules, and and the whole story of CSNY was like breaking rules, and it really yeah. started yeah. you know from from using their names in a group and, and not being a conventional band and all that stuff. Uh, everything about them was like we're just going to do we make the rules in our fashion, you know, and and so yeah, it starts with with Crosby breaking the rules right away, sitting in Springfield, getting fired a few months later, but with Springfield fall apart. So it's Stills and Crosby in the beginning who start hanging out together, uh, doing some recording, you know, getting high together. That's why the, the jokey group name of the two of them was going to be the Frozen Noses, although they <laughs> just a joke. Ooh, early cocaine joke. Exactly. In 1968. I think one of the things I try to explore in the group is that they, they were brought together, I think, so there were some, you know, kind of psychological aspects to this you know i think crosby was he still liked the idea of a group and a brotherly situation 
And Stills is someone who's very cocky, but all, needs a lot of support, needs to be told, yeah, you're good at what you do. Don't worry about it. Just keep doing it. You're great. Mm-hmm. And Nash grew up feeling uncool growing up in England in a town called Salford, just outside of Manchester, where he wasn't near London. If you were in London, you were cool. If you were in the, where he was in his factory town, you were not cool. And uh, he was briefly felt kind of that way when he was in the Hollies and they were a big hit and girls were screaming after them. But, but by 67, 68, the Hollies were not cool anymore. And he meets Crosby, who during that period is the embodiment of rock cool. He's got the cape. He's got the mustache. He's got the best weed possible. I, 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 I have a hard time uh, imagining Crosby with a cape. I, I read that several <laughs> times in your book, and I'm I still have a hard time trying to figure out the cape. But but sure, it was green sometimes too. So he has several. Yeah, that cliche of uh, the, the Jerry Maguire line that you complete me uh, very much. Uh, I think applies to these guys in the beginning. Um, as well as musical as well. You know, Crosby was looking for someone a little more experimental than the birds in terms of a little looser musically. It still fulfilled that. And so there were, there were all kinds of uh, components kind of coming together, bringing these guys together. Yeah. Doesn't Mama Cass have something to do with that as well? Right. Well, it's still a point of contention as to what exactly, but yes. Oh, yes. I had heard the story that it was Joni Mitchell who they're all hanging out smoking pot one night at her house. And, you know, uh, she goes, you three should form a group. But that doesn't sound like that's really the truth. Everyone has a different story about this. Yeah. To this day, they argue about it, uh, assuming you can put them in the same room again but, uh, at this point. But Nash and Crosby insist that it happened. Uh, at Joni Mitchell's house, uh, Stills insisted it was at Cass Elliott's house. This is all not far from each other in Los Angeles. But, you know, Stills says, like, you know, it would never have happened in Joni's house because he was so intimidated by Joni's songwriting talent that the idea of him singing one of his songs to her was unthinkable. That was not going to happen. Oh, OK. Right, right. right. Even though it's 68 and she's not like a superstar. But no, no. Yeah. It was unquestionable. And, uh, and Crosby and Nash insist it was at her house. But whatever it was, the Mama Cass Elliot, the, the, you know, the moms and papas, knew all of them. And she was like a Gertrude Stein sort of character who would bring people together in sort of salon, musical salons in a way, and things like that, uh, so to speak. She knew, as they all did, that Crosby and Stills had this group, but it wasn't quite coming together. It was missing something, and maybe it needed a high voice. And, you know, John Sebastian of Eleven Spoonful, who was their friend, told me and Andrew with him that, you know, yeah, that was that those discussions were going on. And people were saying, maybe you need like a Phil Everly or maybe that guy Graham Nash. And Holly's like a high voice like that. And something clipped with Cass Elliott. She knew Graham as well uh, from, from the Holly's trips to Los Angeles. And she just kind of maneuvered it one night where they all ended up in somebody's living room. <laughs> Whoever's living room it was, they all ended up there together and uh, and sang together for the first time, although I think they did have a little semi-jam session a few months earlier, but like where they actually sang a real song together with one of Silva's was, was that summer of 68 in one of, the, in one of those living rooms. And it just kind of clipped right away, and, and um, they all kind of looked at each other and said, wow, that's a new sound, which it was. You know, it was. I mean, CSN were interesting in that they came from these three big groups, the Hollies, the Springfield, and the birds. And yet, when you listen to that first CSN record, you don't listen to it and go, oh, that's just a knockoff of the birds or a knockoff of right. the Springfield. They did create this whole new sound that just took off from where they were and brought it to some new places. So well, I think that with that sense of that, that, that very first night. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about what is obviously a huge secret to their long lasting success, and that is their unique harmonies. 
Can you explain to us what makes them so special? In the harmonies? Yeah. Absolutely. It's it's three voices together, and yet and yet the, the harmonies didn't deny the personalities. Like if you listen to the classic pop harmony groups that came before them, like Beach Boys or the Four Seasons or so forth, those are amazing oral harmonies almost. And even though like maybe Frankie Valli will pop out or something, there's something very vacuum-packed about those harmonies. But everybody was kind of pushing for the Everly's type of blood harmony type of thing, right? Right, 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 right exactly. And CSNs were tight harmonies, but in the way it was recorded and the, and the three very different voices, they were together. And yet, you know, voices, would, their individual voices would still emerge. Yeah, they're easy to pick out. Yeah, and, and so that was a very unusual approach to harmony singing. It, it really embodied them. They were a group of they weren't. You, know, you could still make out the individual parts, you know, living up to their initial announcement. They we're using our names because we're a group, but we're not, we might not be a group next year. Maybe we'll do solo albums this year, next year. You know, uh, they kind of said that right from the beginning. Nobody believed them, <laughs> and the audience didn't want uh, those solo albums necessarily. But uh, but you know, the harmonies, uh, that approach to harmony singing, um, and, and which was also very intimate too. If you listen to like you know. Uh, like a lady of the island, for example, on the first yeah. end record. Nash's voice is so, it's right there in your face. And then when Crosby's harmony comes in, they kind of dance around each other. Uh, it, it's almost like vocalese or something. It's, 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 it's like a Renaissance fair kind of uh, harmony singing around each other. And, and again, like no one was doing that back then. No, and especially if so, it would take years to develop that sort of close ability to just innately know where the other person was going and to react properly around it. Uh, and, and these guys were doing this in like weeks. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, it was it was that instantaneous. I mean, they started singing together. I think it was August of 68. It's kind of hard to pin down. No one was taking notes or taking pictures back then. But it seems like it was August. And then, you know, by December, they were, you Nash know, had left the Hollies and they were about to start recording and had a record deal. So, I mean, it was like things happened very fast from perfecting those harmonies to uh, starting a group and recording. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, another real secret weapon along with their harmonies is we have to give it up to Stephen Stills and his uh, his musical abilities, right? Right, absolutely. I mean, he was just at the, just the top of his game at that point, and he played most of most of the instruments on that first CSN record. He didn't play drums, uh, but he played most of the guitars, all the bass guitars, and all the keyboard parts. He was just, you know, firing on all cylinders. This one, this was, uh, and he was so comfortable in that position. He, he likes being in charge and steering things, and that's why he had the nickname Sarge in the seventies. <laughs> no, there's no, there's a reason for that. And you know, just the, the range. If you listen to that first record, the range of guitar playing, you know, the styles, everything from the finger picking and the arpeggio stuff, and then the solo stuff, and wooden ships and so forth. I mean, he, he got an incredibly wide range of tones as well out of his guitars. And a background in uh, uh, blues, I think uh, uh, also some Latin playing. Uh, didn't didn't he end up as a child out in the Caribbean islands as well? Uh, he grew up in La- a little bit in Latin America. Yeah. Uh, and because uh, his father was moving around and doing different uh, businesses and construction and so forth. So he was in Panama for a while. And uh, he was exposed to Latin music, and then he was in the South. He lived in Florida for a bit, and so he would hear, you know, bluesmen uh, playing in clubs. And that was a, 
also very important because I think it also brought a little um, a little gravitas to the Crosby Nash thing. They could be a little floaty, you know, in their way, in their music, a little airy. And I think Stills brought that grit that also added so much yeah. to the sound. Um, well, he, he, he came from a real rock and roll outfit. I mean, Buffalo Springfield was, uh, right. of, of the three, you know, Birds and the Hollies, uh, the other two, you know, that's a real rock and roll uh, uh, band there. Right. And a real uh, jamming rock and roll band, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Especially when we'll bring that fourth guy in a little bit later. Yeah. I mean, I've, so I've heard some Springfield live recordings where, I mean, you wouldn't mistake them for the Grateful Dead, but they would just go off on these these 10 minute jams. Right. With Stills and Young, you know, playing back and forth. And it's fantastic stuff. And uh, it's unfortunate that a lot of it wasn't sort of properly recorded. So I don't think there's ever going to be a Buffalo Springfield live album. But uh, there are, you know, bootlegs around there would really kind of show that they could really kind of take off. And, and, and Stills loved doing that. He was a real jamming kind of guy. Yeah. We we agree. We agree. I want to bring in another character because this is also a unique thing with these guys, and that is how the record deal came about, kind of uh, directed by uh, Ahmet Erdogan. Right. Um, the, the big puzzle with them was that they were all on different labels at the time. Right. right. Uh, Stills was on Atlantic, still with uh, as a result of Springfield, and, and Graham Nash was on EMI in, in London, in England with the Hollies. And Crosby actually didn't have a deal. He was, he was out of the birds. He didn't have a record. So it was very complicated from the beginning. And there was at least one major label that just you know, passed all together. This, this is just too you – know, how, how do you figure this out? You have two guys with existing deals and all that. And, and um, it did take Ahmed Erdogan, among others, to kind of figure out how to do this. And they thought, okay, it was almost like uh, baseball team players, you know. And then a trade. It was a trade because still Richie Fure, who was in Buffalo Springfield with, with Stills, had a band called Poco. And Nash was on uh, Epic Records in America. And so he, just, he, he suggested that the, the Poco go to Epic and then Nash come to Atlantic. And it was a whole, you know, uh, wheeling and dealing kind of situation. And it almost didn't work because, you know, it, took, it dragged on so long that even Erdogan was getting a little frustrated. And he once said to Stills, you're putting me through all this just for some harmony singing. <laughs> but they were very confident, you know, CSN from the beginning. You know, they, they were very confident in their abilities. They knew what they had. They, that's why they hooked up with you know, David Geffen and Ellie Roberts, even though they were young Turks as managers. They had that, that shark instinct in them. And they were like, we knew we needed sharks to defend us. And they were very cocky and they, they knew it would just work out. And they, they knew what they had, and they knew it would work out, and, and it did, you know, at least in the beginning. <laughs> well, I, I think it's fair to say the, the first supergroup with legs, uh, you know, uh, with all due respect to Cream, you know, these guys uh, went on and, and had many albums, and uh, maybe even still can uh, get out there uh, and tour. So the first album, let's talk a, a little bit about that, um, because it does just really shock the music world, uh, even before it's released, right? Yeah, even before it was released, you know, um, the three of them would take a test pressing. It's so kind of a foreign concept now. It's like an LP before it comes out, you know, and, and they would take it around to play it for their friends in the little canyon in L.A. Just to, and just like sit there and watch this, people's minds be blown by this new sound. Like I said, they were very confident in what they had. Because they weren't prepared for rejection even then. And so, yes, and it was, you have to put it in the context of the times. Um, here's this record with this beautiful, sunny harmonies and these great songs. And a very kind of, there's a glow around that record. You know, and so I think it comes from the, the joy of 
when they discovered each other musically and that, and that rush um, of a new sound and new friendships, and you can hear it on that record. But also, it's, it's the context of the times uh, that also blew people away because it was a it was a pretty bleak time. Um, you know, this was uh, a, a, it came out in May of '69, so we're talking roughly a year after Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King had been killed. Nixon had just been elected president. The Vietnam War was was raging. You, you were having more and more campus clashes and. You know, things were just getting um, really bleak and depressing at that point. And here comes this record that, you know, addresses that in some ways. You know, Long Time Gone being written right after Bobby Kennedy was killed. And Wooden ships, uh, apocalyptic uh, science fiction in, in a way. It's <laughs> a science fiction thing uh, written with, with uh, Paul Kanner, the Jefferson Airplane. And it wasn't escapism, uh, but it had a sense of hope and optimism that, that sprang out of those grooves. That people were just desperate to hear at that moment in time. So it really, it, it filled a hole, even more so than the fact that there was a whole kind of back to the roots acoustic thing happening at that time with the National, Dylan's National Skyline, the band, and all that stuff. There was a reaction to electric music, but these guys embodied that, you know, more than anybody. Because it, it wasn't just acoustic, but it, it, it had an uplift to it. Right, right, right. And a bit of roots uh, as well. And then those soaring harmonies, which I didn't uh, get until I read your book, that was actually remixed by Erdogan and uh, Jerry Wexler afterwards, right? Uh, it was, Yeah, it was actually remixed. Um, Erdogan suggested, and then Stills and Bill Halverson, the engineer, went back and tweaked it some more because he wanted he wanted to, the voices to be uh, up really higher. top. Yeah, and, and you can hear that. And I've always yeah. often wondered that. There's one thing, I, one of those little things I learned in the book. is like, why, why are the instruments on that CSN record, like the drums and those things, why are they so pushed so, back? Right. So in the background, you know, and that's why that was that was Erdogan's request. He said he was used to hearing them as a harmony group. He wanted the harmonies to be up high, and so they kind of Stills and Halverson kind of begrudgingly went along and and we did it. Uh, they tried to bring in somebody else to do it, but they said, no, we'll do it. They went in and we and remixed it a bit to to Erdogan's satisfaction, but you know, in retrospect, it was probably a smart choice because you know that the that the singing did jump out more, and that that was their their calling card right in the beginning. There. Yeah, you know, it seems like uh, a lot of this reaction to the late '60s and this uh, call for calm, if you will, uh, in some of the music really stems out of Laurel Canyon. That's the section in Los Angeles where a lot of these folks uh, lived at the at the time. Uh, the the Joni Mitchells, the Mama Casses, the and uh, the guys from um, uh, CSN, along with many others. Why do you think it was considered such a magical and fruitful place for? that late 60s and early 70s rock and roll? Well, that's a great question. Everyone was seem to be going to California. Like, you know, the music business had its roots in New York, too, but so many more record companies were starting offices out there, and it was just the weather and the climate. It sounds so superficial to say that, but... It- <laughs> yeah, you don't have to tell us, uh, you know, from California or so. Neil drove to L.A. from, from Canada and stills drove there from the south. You know, it's like, you got to be in L.A., and so it, it, the West is the best. The West is the best, and it, it just brought in this incredible sort of pilgrimage, uh, as well, combined with the people who grew up there. Uh, the, you know, the, the guys in the Eagles were the same, you know. Glenn Fry went out there from Detroit, and Don Hanley from Texas. Yeah, from Texas. I mean, everyone was like, "You got to be in L.A., and especially if you want to make it, because that's where like the record companies are." 
So it was just this magnet that pulled in all these people from all over the place. And, you know, one of the phrases I kept hearing over and over again for this and, and even, you know, earlier things I've written was, you know, it was like Paris in the 20s. You know, it's just, it yeah. was an incredible, you know, uh, atmosphere bringing in, you know, those people we mentioned and Jackson Brown and Joni Mitchell and Warren Zeeban and Linda Ronstadt from who's in Arizona. And it's just, you know, it just attracted this incredible range of people who all became superstars and all became superstars. Yeah. And, you know, I learned this. I was as I was driving around. And don't forget, Frank Zappa lived in the Laurel Canyon as well. You know, I, I, I put together a map of where everyone lived and worked and all that and spent an afternoon driving around in L.A. and seeing all these sites. And, and you, know, you realize how, how close everything was to each other. L.A. is pretty spread out. Not there. Not not this here. Yeah. It's self-contained. It is. Yeah, I found yeah, the Canyon house. store, you know, I mean. Yeah, I found a house where Joni Mitchell and Graham Nash lived. It's still there. It's still intact. And, you know, the drive from that to Cass Elliott's house is, I don't know, maybe 10 minutes, which in L.A. is nothing. Yeah. yeah. So that reminded me of just how uh, how close knit a lot of these people were. A lot of them lived on the same block, and you know, Carol King lived down the block from this person and that person, and people would literally like walk down the street with their guitar and hey, I got this new song. That's that's an incredible real atmosphere. I mean, you had something like that in New York in the seventies in East Village and CBGBs, and people were sort of living around each other, but uh, maybe not as friendly. <laughs> well, different type of music. So. Different music, too, indeed. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, well, since you mentioned it, definitely Amit had something to do with this, but uh, walking down the street with a guitar or, you know, driving, if you will, and uh, Neil running into, I believe, David Crosby is kind of how that happens, right? Right, right. I mean, they met each other a little bit, but uh, didn't know each other real well. And the story, as Crosby relayed to me, was that uh, by then, which was probably summer, early summer of 69, uh, Nash and Joni were together. They were a couple living in that house. And Crosby... Our uh, house. Our house, the Our House, the Lookout Mountain. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and Crosby was just there visiting him, or he was just there hanging out in their driveway, waiting for them to come back from wherever they were. And, um, and, and funnily enough... Um, this probably was not the same afternoon, but uh, well, Marty Wachtel, famous you know, L.A. Oh, yeah, session player. guitar player. He moved, right. he moved out to L.A. also around the same time from, from Rhode Island and with his band. And he remembers when they drive on Sunset Strip and there was there were Nash and Joni standing there like pitching a ride. And he was like, oh, my God. Like He knew where they were. He offered them a ride. They came and had a big pile of weed with them. <laughs> I don't think that was the same Good trip. times. Good times. But good times, absolutely. So Crosby was just hang- said he was just hanging out in the driveway, and Neil drove by and just stopped, and he had his guitar, and he said, hey, uh, I want to hear some songs. And in Crosby's memory was the two songs that ended up on Deja Vu, which were Helpless and Country Girl. Nice. Nice. And, and you know, that was a pivotal moment because that was when there was some discussion of Neil joining the group, and Crosby and Nash were both very much on the fence about it. Um, they knew from the start that not only did they have something special, but that there was a kind of a nitroglycerin aspect to this. It was a very delicate balance between the three of them, and they found that, and why mess with it? But uh, all kinds of things ended up pulling them all, all four of them together. Um, and Stills also had his concerns because he, he knew Neil could be a little unreliable, and, and there was a, still a very strong competitive thing between them. Um, but you know, CSN needed to tour and they needed more musicians behind them. They needed a band. And they needed some fireworks on stage. Right. 
Right. And you know, they went through all kinds of people. They tried to meet with Stevie Winwood and they supposedly, you know, asked George Harrison if he wanted to join the group as a backup musician. Like I said, they were very confident. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's beyond that's beyond confidence there, but sure. <laughs> and so they needed somebody and um, it was finally Ahmed Erdogan who, who loved Buffalo Springfield and so wanted loved the idea of Stills and I'm playing together. He was the one who finally, you know, tossed out the idea at a dinner. Like, what, what about Neil? Stills very much on the fence, but they also knew uh, it would probably be financially rewarding. They also and once Crosby heard those songs, he knew that you know it was hard to deny that. And and you know, so we forget uh, after fifty years that you know Neil's solo career didn't exactly start with a bang. You know, those first two albums of his, uh, Neil Young and Everybody Knows This Is Nowhere, are great records, and we all know those songs on them. Down by the River and Cinnamon Girl and The Loner and all that stuff. But those records were not successful records at the time. They, right. they barely right. made charts. One of them didn't make the charts at all. Right. The one peaked at, I think, 125 or so. So they were not hit records. And this smart guy, he realized, oh, if I join up with these guys who have an instant smash hit album, I'll suddenly be part of this supergroup and my profile will be raised and I can ride that. It was you know, somewhat calculated. Uh, although he, at the same time, he, he did love playing the stills, and I think he, he missed that a little bit. So there were all kinds of factors going into it, but we do tend to forget that Neil was not a was not a superstar who was joining them. And I think that was also another factor is, given the stills and young competitiveness, the fact that Stills was asking Neil to join his hit group was another aspect of that dynamic. You know, Stills suddenly had the upper hand, there, <laughs> which, which made it more tolerable for him. <laughs> <laughs> so they go from a quiet introductory album, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and now Deja Vu with Neil Young, right? Right. Explain to us how that changed the music and changed the dynamic as they get into the studio and then the ensuing tour. Well, it changed the dynamic right away in the studio because Stills was no longer in charge. You know, no one's no one bosses Neil around. And so that was evident right from the beginning. You know, he had his songs on the record and, you know, they thought they were done and he would take them away and keep working on them and mixing them and adding things and all that. And, and, and Stills was not the boss anymore. And, and uh, also there was all kinds of personal stuff going on and Stills had just broken up with Judy Collins and David Crosby's girlfriend, Christine, was killed in a horrible car accident like just weeks before they started recording Deja Vu. So he was out of it, you know, and, and Nash suddenly had to be the boss because Crosby had sort of been the boss before that. Crosby and, and Nash's relationship with Joni is sort of starting to unravel a little bit. He's irked that Neil is in and out of the sessions. Neil, Neil isn't on half of Deja Vu. Again, we, we forget that, but he's only on five of those ten songs. And two of those songs that he's not on are Graham Nash's songs. He's not on Our House and he's not on Teacher Children, which irks Nash to this day. <laughs> he's like, why was Neil singing playing on my songs? Uh, so, you know, you add in, you know, piles of people. Because Neil didn't want to. Exactly. Because <laughs> Neil just probably wasn't. didn't like him. So. <laughs> but Neil wasn't going to tell you. So. Exactly. So he was, Neil was in and out. There's piles of cocaine and making everybody edgy. Uh, it was, um, you know, you listen to that album now and it sounds, it sounds so smooth, you know, you wouldn't think, uh, that there was all this turmoil going on behind the scene, but it was a kind of a crazy record. You know, Neil, they were all staying in San Francisco and Neil had these little bush babies in his room jumping around and there were all kinds of, uh, 
nutty things going on. You know, by comparison, the making of the first CSN record, which took a couple of weeks, uh, and it was totally smooth for the most part. They had the songs, they rehearsed them, Sweet Judy Boys, The Windships, and all the songs had been pretty much nailed down. They knew what they were doing. This record, it was a haphazard group of songs from here and there. They hadn't really rehearsed them that much. You got Neil in the mix, you got drugs in the mix, business stuff, publishing deals being set up where they each make more money. They realize, oh, I make more money if I have more songs on the record, you know, so it's almost diametrically opposed to the making of the first album. Um, yet, you know, when Neil's there, the impact is undeniable. If you listen to, Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. It's a Woodstock. Uh, I mean, it, the country girl suite, I think is amazing. Uh, even though he, he did whatever he did on his own, it still sounds like this amazing, like a group symphony, with all their voices coming in and out. It's fantastic uh, recording. So he brought something and yet, they lost something at the same time. That brotherhood was broken a little bit. And, and it would forever be, you know, a, a friend of theirs made this point to me. It was so interesting. He said, you know, um, they, had a, they, had, you know they had a good brand from the start. The first album was Crosby, Stills, Nash. Once Neil joins and then he's gone after a bit, anytime they were Crosby, Stills, and Nash, you know, people would be like, where is There was Neil? something missing, right. Yeah. yeah. Whereas they didn't, if they had just kept going on their own, they wouldn't. Had people <laughs> asking, "Where's Neil?" All the time. All right. So, in 1970. Now they 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 have two albums. Uh, the first two albums, and then then the first of many splits happens. Why the first one? You know, um, you know, women, ego, all kinds of things. Uh, they actually broke up right after they did one show on the tour for Deja Vu. <laughs> they had a big tour planned for the spring. Of 1970 to promote that album, they do their first show in Denver, and on stage, you know, they they imploded right there. You know, Stills was being a little too bossy for everybody else. They weren't really rehearsed. They just fired uh, the bass player, Greg Reeves, and it was a kind of a mess of a show. And so right away, they almost broke up. Then, uh, actually, they did break up, and they just flew back to LA and canceled the rest of the tour, which was kind of a no-no. Yeah. It was one of those moments when they were like, we're going to break all the rules. And the business people said, not, not this one. That rule. <laughs> right. uh, so, Contracts, boys. Right. So they were already like a year or so into it. They were all getting on each other's nerves a lot. And you throw in some women issues, in this case, Rita Coolidge, who, you know, Stills had just met in that summer of 70 and was immediately smitten with her. He invited her to recording session of one of his new songs he also invited nash to the same session nash and rita meet at that session a little spark happens between them and rita realizes as she told me you know she was just more relaxing to be around graham and so decided to go with graham they told stills personally he got really upset spit at nash you know like uh and that was kind of the last straw the ironic thing is that the song that Stills invited them to record on was Love the One You're With. You know, <laughs> that's irony. <laughs> so it was a combination of, I think, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the egos and, and, and everyone, everyone telling each one of them that they're great uh, around them. And, and, uh, and also they made a pile of money. Uh, you know, those first two albums by 71 that sold 3 billion copies, which is a huge number for that period of time. Nowadays, I, mean, I think of Thriller or whatever, it seems minor. 
But back then, that was a huge number of records. They made made a ton of money, and they were kind of like, hey, you know, we've said we're not going to be a real band, and we're going to make solo albums. That's what we're going to do now. Yeah, and that's what they did. And in a way, you can almost understand that in the sense that they they were at the peak of their creativity, just like cranking out songs. I mean, Crosby's never been one to you know, write 10 songs a day like Neil, but he was pretty prolific. And, you know, they put out these group albums where they each have like two songs. So you can almost say like, okay, like, you know, I've got, I've got all these other songs. What am I going to do? I'll make my own record. So again, they broke the rules and decided, you know, we, we're successful. We can just go off on our own and maybe we'll replicate the same success without. without yeah, so all four released solo albums to good critical review and sales. Um, but would it be fair to say that this is where Neil Young begins to shine a little brighter than the others? He does. He does. And um, it, it's in a way a bit of a mystery because, you know, it's not like the first couple of Stills records or the record you made with Manassas or Nash's songs for beginners are, are bad records. They're all like really strong records. But I think Neil, um, especially with Heart of Gold, 72, yeah. it becomes this massive song. And Harvest, the album that is number one, along with Heart of Gold, he, he vaulted past those guys um, in some ways artistically and certainly commercially. Like, he was his own man right from then. I mean, it was evident before that, but certainly the success of Harvest clinched that he didn't need them. I mean, he was totally fine on his own or with whatever combination. But uh, And that wasn't always the case with the other guys. I think they realized that, well, we kind of, we might need each other to get to the same kind of levels. Yeah, I, I think consistently since it's the the three of them kind of need each other. Yeah, Neil can do what Neil wants to do, uh, and you know Neil always did whatever Neil wanted to do. So in in '74 they get back together for their first big reunion tour, dubbed the Doom Tour, I believe. But uh, no album of new material. So tell us about the first uh, reconciliation. In 74, in again, it was um, a little more financially, I think, motivated than uh, in the past. And, and maybe even going forward, it was one of those moments where their solo records and things, especially CSNs, hadn't sold as well. And, you know, Stills was going through money left and right. The $36,000 snowplow, you know, didn't help. And... Uh, <laughs> And, and so Neil agrees, they, they decide that, you know, he agrees to rejoin them and the plans are put together for a real genuine money-making enterprise, at least on paper. Yeah, because this was put together by Bill Graham, right? Bill Graham had this idea of like uh, realizing that they were a super group and they were still beloved and people would really want to see them together again after four years. And let's do a tour that's mostly in stadiums, which, you know, really had not been done before. You know, the Beatles and so forth and the dead would play an occasional game like that, but no one had done like a tour where most of it was in stadiums. Right. 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 And so, um, it was hard to deny the, the financial ramifications of that. I asked one of Neil's friends, why then did he rejoin them? Yeah. He didn't need them. Well, he didn't need them, but he needed them. You know, according to his friend, he's like, he still had the numbers in his head. It's like, well, Neil had just bought the ranch in Northern California. Yeah, a few broken years. arrow. Right. Broken arrow. And he needed 24000 for the Ross asphalt, for the roads. He had to repave the roads. <laughs> There's a whole checklist of things. That, uh, oh, it was an infrastructure need. Okay. It's infrastructure. <laughs> it needs to be maintained and upgraded. And so um, so they agree to do this. And, you know, again, Neil does it on his own terms. He, he doesn't travel with them. He drives either in a, in a van or, or a car uh, with, his, with his own little posse, his few friends. You know, he doesn't 
see them much uh, before the show or after the show. Uh, and they're all like noticing this, of course. You know, there it was again doing my research and digging up old interviews. I found now, more is this the tour where they start handing notes uh, under the doors of each other, that sort of thing? Uh, that was more like earlier, yeah. Um, but what they did with this one, uh, you know, the sort of scale of it, they were being catered to in, in every way. You know, it was somebody's job before the tour started to take cartons of cigarettes and take the plastic off each little individual carton and unroll each cigarette and take out the tobacco, replace it with weed, roll the cigarette back up, put it back in the little case and put the plastic on top to kind of, you know, get it all through customs. So, you know, they were being catered to in ways that, uh, were all new. All new to rock and roll at the time. <laughs> Debauchery at its finest. And and yeah, Neil is kind of a fleeting presence off stage, you know, and, and, and they're fighting the elements, you know, the, the harmonies in them suffer because Neil and Stills are playing too loud or the weather conditions aren't great. And sometimes it's a little ragged, but they make it through it. And then, you know, history repeats itself in the sense that they, a few months after it ends, they decide to make a new record, which again is a rule breaking thing. Usually when you do these things, you make a record first and then, and then do it right. Yeah, sure. In this case, they were like, we can do this big tour, get completely wrecked and drained by the end of it. And then we'll make a record together in the studio. It's like, what were you thinking, right? But that's how they did it. And sure enough, just a couple of days, they spent a total of four days uh, in, in booked in the studio in Northern California. The first day was setting up the gear. And then the, there were two days where they tried to record together and it fell apart. And then the fourth day was the gear being taken down. <laughs> you know, yeah. So it was an unfortunate thing because that record, which they wanted to call Human Highway, would have been terrific. You look at the songs that they were planning to record for, you know, some of the Neil, you know, Neil stuff like Push It Over the End, maybe, and Crosby had Carry Me. And, you know, they, they had really good songs. It would have been a strong record. But, but after two days, and Neil bails. He's like, he's had enough. You know, it's, not, it's no longer fun. When it's not fun, he's out the door. That whole project didn't fell apart. Well, then he went and made the movie uh, Human Highway a few years later, right? He did, yeah. Completely, <laughs> completely different thing. You know, the, one of the strangest movies ever made, I think. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, right up there with 200 motels. So, you know, there, there's something about the intimacy of these voices uh, working with each other that is hard to duplicate in, in a stadium-type environment. And I think in the book, Crosby even points out that, you know, you're playing in front of uh, 30, 40, 50,000 people in this sort of uh, quiet type of music, and you also don't have that, you know, the Mick Jagger type of frontman who's going to shake his ass and draw the audience in and give them a focal point. Would that be fair to say some of the reasons why this maybe didn't quite work so well in the stadium? It did, yeah. I mean, at least a good third of the show was acoustic without backup musicians. And it would be either one of them or some combination of them, you know, with their acoustic guitars and pianos. And sometimes playing new songs that no one had heard before. And to do that in a stadium of like 50,000 people with primitive sound systems was a challenge. Oh, the mid-70s, right. Oh, they're starting to get better, but they're still fairly primitive. Yeah, Yeah, and uh, they're starting to get better. But yes, it's still pretty primitive. And some of the crew members were telling me for the book that, yeah, if the wind went a certain way, <laughs> you know, uh, no one was quite prepared for how to do this uh, on a nightly basis and have it sound good every single night. And the idea of having playing these quiet songs to these thousands and thousands of people, some of whom might be uh, lubricated or something or other, you know, on whatever, and 
you know, shouting and screaming and all this was a real challenge. Just recently, you know, Neil Young's been putting out these archival releases and he put out this live tape. Yeah, pretty much everything that he's done uh, is available on his new website. Right, and and the one's called Songs for Judy, and he just put out, and uh, it was it was from a, a acoustic show he did in '76, and not in a, in a in a huge venue or anything, but and he's you know you hear these people just in the audience just like screaming and yelling throughout the whole thing. I mean, it almost gets to be kind of funny after a while. So in in 1977, after several aborted attempts with Neil, the three originals do put an album. Uh, CSN that is probably the exact opposite of musical taste found in the streets with the the rise of punk and metal and other rock and roll. So I, I think this is where the magic begins to start to not quite be as uh, shiny as uh, as it once was. Yeah, I think people were expecting in some ways a duplication of you know the first record they'd done together as a trio. By 1977, the, the musical tides were, were changing and, uh, you know, we, in, in some ways, it was the peak year for that kind of genre. I mean, that was the year of Running on Empty by Jackson Brown and Hotel California by the Eagles had just come out the yeah. very 76. And, you know, James Taylor had that big album, JT, with Handyman and so forth. Uh, it was sort of the peak year for that kind of L.A. singer, songwriter, whatever, whatever you want to call it, genre. And then, of course, punk was just around the bend. It had already arrived, of course, but but it was really, you know, really starting to hit its kind of commercial stride and it was starting to make its mark. So um, it was kind of fitting in a way that the CSN record, even though it was a strong record and had you know, songs that have endured, like Cathedral and Dark Star and so forth, that um, it also was the beginning of, of the end in some ways, you know, uh, it actually was a hugely successful record. It was kept out of the number one slot by Rumors, but if, if it wasn't for Rumors <laughs> occupying that slot for forever, uh, that they would have had a number one album. So um, there was definitely an audience there for them, and they played you know arenas on, on tour, and there was definitely that that thirst for that sound. Um, but I think the audience's tastes were going to start to change soon afterwards. Yeah, because by 1980, CSN is more of a brand than a band on replay, right? Pretty much. I mean, a lot of that to do with David Crosby's drug problems kind of really coming to a head and impacting the whole situation. But yeah, by 1980, you've got uh, punk had turned into New Wave. You know, you also had the rise of Journey and Aria Speedwagon and that sort of you know big corporate rock kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. So, so. And in 84, Daylight Again, I mean, I, I think Stills and Nash want to just make a duo uh, album and Atlantic forces David Crosby on them, right? Pretty much. I mean, every one of every record they've made has had drama, <laughs> but there's probably no more drama, even more drama in a way with Daylight Again uh, than there was with, say, Deja Vu, because that record from the beginning, it was supposed to be a CSN record from the start. They had a contract. They had re-signed the contract. They owed records. Uh, but nobody could find Crosby because he was becoming elusive and more more addicted. And so Stills and Nash just went ahead and started making it without him, thinking he'd eventually come around. And, and that didn't happen, basically. And they just went ahead and said, all right, we're just going to do it ourselves. We'll just do it. We'll do a Stills and Nash record. Meaning Stills would finally come first. <laughs> well. yeah, we, we, but but they did have a couple of third uh, voices that they were bringing in. Uh, I think uh, Art Garfunkel was one, yeah. Well, and Tim Schmidt of the Eagles. And yes. Tim B. B. Schmidt, right, right. To do the high parts. and uh, 
So they, and they turned it in, and the record company was like, "Well, this is nice, but I, where's the name Crosby, you know, on the cover, basically?" And so they had to uh, kind of swallow the pride and invite Crosby in. And they took a couple of songs that he had recorded on a solo album that never came out, that his company had rejected, and they cobbled it all together. And, um, and again, you, know, you listen to that record now, and songs like Wasted on the Way and Southern Cross and things like that, you'd never think that there was all this that all this uh, kerfuffle going on, you know, they went into the making of it, but, but there was. And, uh, you know, it's, it's always the thing about them that's continually fascinating is that, you know, for all the brotherhood and harmonies, there's still all this incredible strife going on behind the scenes constantly, you know. And, um, and, uh, and I, think, I think in a way that often helped them, I think it lent their music a little bit of an edge and a little bit of tension that uh, I think distinguished them maybe from, a little river band or America or something, you know, who, yeah. You know, uh, and I, so I think some of that tension, Well, I don't know. Uh, I mean, it's always about the songs and, and, right. and even with that album, you got Southern cross, which is, you know, right. I, I, maybe their last great, great song, but you know, right. they, they constantly have, uh, you know, a greatest hits package that, you know, beats out people like America and the little river band. Right. Uh, and, and it reminds me of a story I heard when I was, uh, from, from another friend of theirs from the early days and they were all rehearsing in a house in Los Angeles and this friend of theirs kind of just lived in this house and would watch them a lot and he said you know one day they were all gathered in the kitchen and Stills and Crosby broke into some crazy argument about something really trivial and in memory it was about turtles that one of them had read something in a newspaper about mating habits or whatever of turtles and the other, I think Stills had read that, and Crosby was like, no, it's not, that's not true, that's wrong. And they started with this massive fight in the kitchen over this. And the guy's like, what the hell's going on here? And then that night, or the night after, they played the Greek Theater in L.A., the first big show there. And they gave this, you know, amazing, beautiful performance. And he was like, oh, maybe that was part of the dynamic, that they just had to, like, get it out of their systems and then, like, make up on stage. And that was his theory. And I think there's, there's something to that, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah, I could see it. I mean, let's face it, it is magic. There's no two ways about it. Uh, and that's why you write uh, long tomes and uh, and I interview people like yourself to learn uh, all the details about it because <laughs> we don't know. It's it, There's something. It, it is interesting and uh, uh, we can speculate till the cows come home, but there's something there. There's something to figure out. Uh, and you're right that they have an interesting dynamic. And I'm sure that was a part of the ingredients that uh, that made them very, very successful. So now David Crosby really goes down um, into prison, DUI, hit and run. Uh, the 80s are just not good for him, huh? They were not. Yeah, he was a full-on uh, drug addict, freebasing, and, and just oh, yeah, on the run, and poor, you know, just broke, and doing whatever he could to kind of scrape together money from sometimes, you know, shoddy solo gigs. Uh, I saw him on one of those gigs in the early 80s here in New York, and... Uh, you know, you didn't know what was going on. You know, there wasn't TMZ back then. You know, right. he just he, he looked a little heavy and a little scrappy. Yeah. But you know, we didn't know. I didn't, was young. I didn't know. But I remember one point, like halfway through the show, he it was just a solo thing. It was just sitting, he was sitting there in a chair. At one point, he like he looked at his watch and yawned. <laughs> oh Jesus! <laughs> like hmm, that's odd. Uh, so yeah, it was not a good time, and and they had to tour behind CSN uh, Daylight Again album, and that was fraught because they had to. They're dealing with the a full-on drug addict, yeah, yeah. I 
mean, we're, we're, we're talking heroin, crack, just about anything. Just about anything. And they have to, you know, make all these, come up with all these contingency plans and precautions. And, uh, a little, build a little room for him off the side of the stage so we could leave the stage for a song or two and get high and then come back. Or they had to know when to turn off his microphone if he wasn't singing well. Uh, they had another backup guitarist who told me his job was to take Crosby's place if Crosby died on the road. <laughs> you know, it, was just, uh, it was unbelievable. And, and somehow they made it through it. You know? And again, like not a lot of people knew what was going on. Well, when he went to prison, everybody knew. Well, he went to prison a couple years later, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So that was that was like 88, I think 87, 88? Right? Yeah, 85 to 86. Yeah, he, he yeah. turned himself in. But the, actually, the real moment was two years before that in 83 when he was on the cover of People magazine. And the, the, uh, the headline was Cocaine Casualty. And it was this big in-depth story painting this incredibly bleak portrait of him broke and you know, giving away his possessions and it was a, it was a kind of a shocking uh so it was almost like a tmz type story uh yeah. know, with, with with an interview with him that was the first public song something was really wrong so in 88 they finally get shaky to pay attention to them again and reform as csn and y with american dream but it again just doesn't seem to contain the old magic yeah it was you know neil committed to that doing a radio interview a few years earlier when Crosby was um, was not in jail yet, but seemed to, you know, he, was, he had been arrested and he was in and out of court and things weren't looking good. And Neil basically said, hey, you know, I've told Crosby if he gets out of jail or, or you know, if he gets himself together, he wasn't in jail yet, if he gets himself together, gets his act together, you know, I'll do something with them. The house hasn't burned down yet. And Crosby took him to that, took him to his board on that. And uh, and so as soon as Crosby got out, <laughs> the phone calls kind of started like, hey, I'm here. I'm out. Come on. No, again, Neil was like, OK, uh, we'll give it a shot. And you know, the pattern repeated as it did in 74 in that stadium tour, as it did in 69 and 70, which is I think Neil goes into these things with often hopeful uh, starting points and thinking that, you know, hey, these are kind of my brothers. I kind of love these guys in many ways. When it works, it's magical. Let's give yeah. it a shot. You know, you know, let's try to recreate that chemistry, that magic. Let's go for it. And it, eventually, as the work and whatever it is, an album or two, whatever it is, goes on, it suddenly comes back to Neil of thinking. Mm -hmm. I, and now I remember why I would ban because <laughs> it's so right. complicated and there's so many right. egos and so many right. distractions and. And, you know, I think that was the case with, with that American Dream album. I think he went into it thinking, OK, this could be good. You know, we haven't made a record in 18 years. We, you know, Crosby's out of prison. He's writing songs again. And, and you know, again, it just dragged on for months and, and it was a stop and start kind of project. And, and he just, you know, he got through it and put it out, didn't tour behind it, which was the telling, yeah. you know. Yeah. So Neil splits again. The trio puts out another lackluster album, Live It Up. Uh, let's talk a little bit about, again, he is the, the presence that is just fills the story. And that's Crosby. And now he has a liver transplant. How did that affect the guys? We never say such things a good thing. But I think for a little bit there, they realized the real true fragility 
of that situation. I mean, Crosby almost died. That was 94. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he almost didn't find a replacement liver until. I mean, uh, like Keith Richards, I'm I'm shocked he is still alive. It's amazing. He's 25 or so years into a new into a new liver, uh, diabetes and all kinds of other issues. But back then in the mid 90s, it, it derailed them for the first time. They 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 didn't go on tour not because they were fighting because Crosby needed like a year off really to recuperate. And there's always that tension there. But I think there was a moment there where actually they they seemed to be appreciating each other more and they went through another tough time but they parted ways with Atlantic Records after 30 years for right, a big right, deal right. and they started just making a record on their own as a trio paying for it themselves which was a sign to Neil that, that maybe it's time to join up with these guys again because they're doing this because they love it they're not doing it because of some big paycheck they're paying for it um, and, and that leads to what became the looking forward yeah, at the turn of the millennium. The right, last right. album probably will be. So mm -hmm. I mean, never say never, but probably is the last season. Yeah, that is the last one so yeah, far. Yeah, right. 20, yeah. 20 years ago this year. And uh, you know, they started making it without him. And then he, through lots of different circumstances, uh, ended up connect, reconnecting with them and stopping by the studio and adding some guitar to some of their songs. Next thing you know, he's contributing to some of his songs. And they have a full-blown you know, album again together and then they toured after that for the first time in 26 years and um, yeah, I think it was it was a moment where I think the music sort of transcended the, the friction a bit there I think they, they realized they'd all kind of been through a lot at that point by the end of the 90s and, and you know rock had changed we were suddenly in like the Limp Biscuit Kid Rock era and uh, they realized that you know what, what they had was, was special and rare <laughs> at that point yeah, and uh, I, I got to see that tour, and it was it was pretty incredible. Um, you know, they seemed to have that old magic back. They did, yeah. There were people who went to sound checks and things and said it would be rusty in the beginning, and then when it clicked, uh, you know, they would say, oh, it was almost like 30 years earlier. That's maybe a bit of an exaggeration. They're not going to be like 1969 again, but once they got that vocal blend up and running again, they, they could recapture that. I saw that tour, too. It was really good. It was and they had a good, they had a good backup band, Jim Keltner on drums and so forth. So it was, uh, it was a great show to see. And you, and you could see also, you saw again in person what Neil brought to the thing that wired energy that he had. You know, he was. Uh, yeah, because I got to play Neil songs. So <laughs> that, was, that was pretty cool, too. All right. So, you know, just to a contrast and compare, because they were at the original Woodstock, and then they played the 94 as a trio. Um, what did you hear about the, the, the comparisons between the original event and the, the 94 event? From from their perspective, you mean? Or, or, yeah. Yeah. I, it, was, it was a radically different uh, moment. I mean, they got paid about 10 times more than they did at the original. So that helped. Um, but, you know, Crosby's liver problems and his hepatitis was starting to act up around then. So he was not in great shape going into it. Uh, and, you know, they were they played in between the Rollins Band and Nine Inch Nails, which is like, you know, could there have been a worse slot for them? <laughs> right, right. Um, and, uh, you know, compared to those guys, they, they all looked, you know, overweight and old and, you know, they weren't that old. When you think about it, they were probably like in their early 50s. You know, it's not that old, but they certainly looked at at the time and the contrast could not have been stronger. Um, and, you know, I mean, Crosby has nothing but dismissive feelings about it now. It just feels it was just awful. He, he thought the mosh pit stuff was just horrible. He's going back. 
he's going back. You know, it was still a good paycheck, and uh, you know, uh, interestingly enough, Neil Neil had been the, the, the promoter wanted all four of them, and according to him, as he told me, the word from Neil's camp was Neil's either doing it on his own or not at all. He's not going to do it with the other guys. So, uh, therefore, it did not surprise me when there was not a CSNY uh, reunion for this Woodstock 50 coming up this year because Neil wasn't interested in doing that in Woodstock 25 either. Right, right, right. All right, so October 27, 2013, that is the last time the four shared a stage here in San Francisco, our once annual bridge school, which is no more. Um, What was that night like? It's a strange night in that uh, they'd done reunions there before, going back to the first Bridge School show in 86. Um, but this one was very strange in that, you know, Neil's always kind of apart from them in some way or another, but he really seemed that way that night. Like, they, they were singing all on their mics, and he was like bobbing and weaving like behind them. <laughs> it was, even Nash said to me, he was like, yeah, it was really, really strange. I didn't know what was going on there uh, with Neil. It wasn't like a bad performance. I just, it seemed like anticlimactic in some ways compared to um, some of the earlier ones. And, and uh, it was just kind of a, a bit of a head scratcher. They hadn't played at that point in about seven years, I think. So it was a little rusty and uh, it was just sort of a, a kind of blase thing. But of course, the real final moment was about two years later when CSN did that performance for the uh, tree lighting at the White House. That ended up being... Oh, that's horrible. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, So because that was without Neil, of course, but that was 2015. And uh, I think it was a teleprompter issue is what starts this debacle, right? Exactly. Uh, this was uh, the, the, uh, the annual tree lighting ceremony, which that year had Crosby, Sills, Nash, Miss Piggy, and Fallout Boy. There you go. That's, cool. uh, <laughs> that's put on by the Parks uh, Department. It was supposed to start with each one of the CSN guys reading off a teleprompter saying what their favorite park was. You know, I'm David Crosby, and my favorite park is blah, blah, blah. I'm Graham Nash. And through some kind of flub, you know, Crosby just kept reading everybody's parts. And you know, if you watch the thing on YouTube now, you see a little bit of this. It's been edited out <laughs> by somebody. But, you know, you see at one point still throwing a pick at Crosby yeah. the other side of the stage, yeah. and he goes, I can't believe he did that. And what he was responding to was Crosby reading his lines. And then and then the microphones and, and something was mixed up with the sound systems. They couldn't quite hear each other. And it was like the worst version of Silent Night ever imagined. And then, yeah, there was a big kind of kerfuffle backstage and Stills and uh, Crosby got into it a bit. And, uh, and that was the end, at least for now. Maybe something will happen. But as of now, that December 15 was the end of the group. Yeah, so uh, on October 27th, 2013 was the last time Neil appeared with them. In 2015 was the end of uh, CSN. And um, as we said at the beginning, it's all because of Crosby. <laughs> it seems like more than anything. So you don't put much stock in the chance of the other guys showing up at Crosby's set at uh, the upcoming uh, Woodstock event. Uh, this, You know, again, it's like uh, you never say never. You know, maybe he and Nash will make up at the last minute, and Nash could join him on stage. But yeah, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't put a lot of sack. It's called David Crosby and Friends, and and Friends is like his own band that he tours with. Yeah, I think it's family yeah. included. Should uh, yeah. into that. Ooh, maybe it's the other three guys. Uh, <laughs> no, it's not him being boy. Yeah, that's the name of his group. 
so yeah, I, I wouldn't put a lot of, of, of faith in that, you know. What can David do to make things right? Yeah, you know, he has apologized. I just, you know, I wonder if they've just reached a point now. They're all in their mid to late seventies. I mean, Crosby's going to be seventy-eight this year, yeah. uh, and I think you know he's he's actually kind of on a roll. He's made a couple of really good albums on his own lately. He's sort of yeah. he's, he's starting to make a fifth one now, which is crazy. He's got a new biopic out. Biopic, the documentary is coming out. Um, he's getting a lot of attention on him, and uh, there's a lot of attention being paid to him now in a flattering way, not in a drug addict way. And I, you know, I, I, I kind of sense that they just maybe they've reached a point in their lives where it's just like, you know what, I, I can't deal with this drama anymore. You know, as Nash said to me, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but you know, I don't know how many years more years I have left, and you know, I just want to be happy. You know, and maybe after 50 years of drama. Uh, they've just sort of had enough, you know. Now Crosby admits that his pay, paycheck has suffered a lot for it, and 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 he's open. He's totally open to the idea of a CSNY show or a reunion. He's 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 raring to go, but it seems like the ill will between him and Cron and Nash is really what's keeping it apart now. So uh, it's funny because it used to be everyone would be waiting on Neil. And now it's like everyone's waiting on Nash, <laughs> almost in some ways, you know. And and uh, Nash has, has, has changed his whole life around. He's living here in New York City with his new wife, and you know he's he's got a whole new life too. And maybe they just feel like you know what we we've done everything we can do together, and maybe we should just let it rest. Ah, the right amount of money can change that. Exactly. Uh, as you well know. So we'll have to see. And who knows? Maybe a surprise will happen at Woodstock. It would be a good place for that to uh, to occur. And um, it sounds like David is, you know, pretty straightened up. Uh, I've listened to a few interviews with him lately, and he sounds uh, like a, a much easier going guy than maybe in the past. But let's face it, these four guys were all unique all had proven it before they got together uh how special they were were special as the the trio that blended voices uh and you have these unique personalities you know david is definitely the exposed id of the group uh stephen uh the quiet genius graham nash the balance of the group the the one that, that quietly keeps it together and then there's you know good old neil who can come in and you know electrify just about uh, anything anybody's doing so you know to get them together uh the many times that they have uh, over the last 50 years has been amazing uh and luckily both of us have got to see and i think a lot of our listeners have gotten to see them and certainly there are all those great songs to to grab and, and listen to at uh, any time so you've written several books on the era you know where do you put csn and y into lasting influence and position in the rock and roll pantheon I mean, I put them pretty high up there at this point. I think they're um, they've they've had their ups and downs, and they've certainly gone through many periods where people dismissed them or wrote them off. But you know, looking back now in fifty years and seeing how well most of those or many say many of those records have held up, especially those early records together, and even a few separately, um, and certainly what they did before and their other groups, I think they deserve their place. They've had a lot of uh, copy bands since then but like no one really still sounds like them they really did help pioneer not just a new kind of harmony singing but also a, a new approach to songwriting and so, you know songs like guinevere for example a good, perfect example of something that hadn't really existed before you know uh that the song in that kind of structure and meter and uh no drums and, and all that you know and i think they brought a new aspect of intimacy 
to music. I think that you know there were there were singer songwriters before them like Dylan, but the way that they wrote about their lives in their songs and kind of put you in their heads and took you for that ride, whether it was pleasant or not, it was certainly um, groundbreaking at the time. I mean, Dylan was writing amazing songs, but kind of hard to figure out what was going on in his head in a lot of those groups. <laughs> Whereas these guys, these guys really pioneered that direct one-on-one from stereo to your, to your ears listener kind of approach that, may, that many have followed since then. You know, Joni Mitchell was doing exactly the same thing at the same time. Uh, they weren't completely alone, of course, but they revolutionized the music in that way. Yeah, they certainly did. Uh, they made a very big splash. All right, what's your favorite CSN and Y song? No, that's like impossible to answer. It's, How about today? <laughs> I uh, it changes. What's What's the first one that popped in your head? It, 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 well, okay, is the question all four of them? Is that is that what you mean, or just the three of them, or what what combination do you mean? No, it could be either or. There's the trio, and then there's the four. Of them. Right, right. Wow. Mm. So I'll let you narrow it down that far. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it really does change by the day. And, you know, right at this moment, I would say you don't have to cry from the first CSN record. Uh, and partly that has to do with the fact that uh, I recently had a book launch party for this book and we had some musicians there playing some of their songs. And that's one of the songs they played at my request because it was the first song CSN sang together. So it seemed like an appropriate song to do. And even though I'm incredibly familiar with that song, just hearing it again in a live setting, and then playing the record afterwards, it reminded me of, of uh, what a sort of you know, glowing little piece of music that is, even though it's like only one verse repeated twice, uh, that it just sort of uh, the very complex harmonies on that, uh, especially yeah. in the chorus and you're Crosby doing a little kind of almost semi-scatting thing underneath. And, uh, you know, there's a lot going on in there. So it kind of embodies a lot of their magic. Well, there you have it. All right. What's next for you, David? Uh Many more articles for Rolling Stone, and uh, this fall, October, um, I had the honor of co-editing a book, a collection of the writings that Jeff Buckley left behind from his journals and notebooks and drafts of song lyrics and all kinds of things that uh, he and uh, uh, his mother and I, who runs the estate, uh, have put together, and it's coming out in uh, the fall called Jeff Buckley, His Own Voice. So I'm very uh, excited about that. All right. Well, David Brown, thanks so much for being with us today on Deeper Digs and Rock. I had a great time. Thanks, Christian. Great being here. give it up for david brown this was my first talk with someone inside the offices of the vaunted rolling stone headquarters in new york city it was a pleasure Uh, david's a great writer and biographer 
This was a sprawling, decades-long story about four men, each with incredible stories alone, but together, while musically outstanding, personal interactions sometimes reach the level of absurdity. It is one of the great rock and roll sagas. Well, yeah, I guess that's why we have David's book. Each member comes from a pillar of 60s rock and roll, the only group where all four have been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame twice. So there's that. I think uh, the takeaway is that they could sing so brilliantly together and then also maintain their unique vocal stylings at the same time. With just a modicum of year, uh, most people can easily pick out the individual voices while they still came as close as possible to Blood Harmonies. And to add insult to injury to all of us singers out there, it appears this just happens from day one. Well, here is hoping that they are able to once more bury the hatchet and give it uh, one more go before these guys head off into the long night. Can everybody quit hating on Crosby? He knows he can be an ass, and he has me a culpud over and over in the last few years. Plus, other than Neil, who consistently puts out quality material, uh, Crosby's made some strong records as of late. Okay, go out and grab a copy of David Brown's Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, The Wild Definitive Saga of Rock's Greatest Supergroup from our friends at DeCapo Press. All right, next week, we talk to author with more than 80 books on rock and roll, Martin Popoff. Until then, keep up the rockin'. Deeper Digs in Rock, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at The RNRAP. We are on Instagram at RNR Archaeology. Tweet us at RNR Archaeology.